Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушает. В России сегодня вступают в силу поправки в Конституцию. Привет, это Навальный. Дело Я уже о сотруднике безопасности. С Новым годом вас. С Новым веком. Владимир Путин's autocratic regime is tightening the screws and turning up the pressure on the opposition. Алексей Навальный remains on hunger strike over being denied proper medical care, and his supporters accuse the Putin regime of trying to kill him in prison. Other opposition figures face harassment, police searches, criminal prosecution, and frivolous civil lawsuits from Kremlin surrogates. But at the same time, Russian civil society has never been more vibrant, more organized, and more determined. This paradox leaves Russia's opposition and civic activists with an agonizing choice. Emigrate and battle the Kremlin from the relative safety of the West, or stay and fight and risk prison or worse. There are no easy answers to this dilemma, and today we'll hear from somebody who has just made this deeply personal choice. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Vilnius, Lithuania, which is actually one of my favorite cities in the world, is leading Russian opposition figure. Vladimir Milov. In addition to leading and founding various parties and movements over the years, including Democratic Choice, Solidarnost, and For a Russia Without Lawlessness and Corruption, Vladimir also served as Russia's energy minister. Welcome to The Vertical, Vladimir. I'm glad we can finally get you on. Hi, Brian. Uh, many thanks for having me. It's great to hear and see you. Yeah, great to see you as well. And also joining us from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood, which is just down the street from mine, is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Welcome back, Maria. Thanks so much, Brian, and thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. So, Vladimir, this is the deal. I was originally planning on doing this podcast this week on the situation surrounding Navalny. Then I heard that you had decided to flee Russia temporarily, I assume, and it gave me the idea to talk to you about this agonizing decision that so many Russian civic activists and opposition figures are being forced to make. Uh, it's a decision your friend and associate, Alexei Navalny, just made, and we are witnessing this, the consequences, and we'll talk about them. And it's a decision you just made. Our mutual friend, Vladimir Karamurza, who's a frequent guest on this podcast and splits his time between Washington and Moscow so much that I say he lives on airplanes, he always says that a Russian politician needs to be in Russia. But the fact of the matter is this is not an easy choice for anybody. It's a deeply personal choice, and there are really no right or wrong answers here. So, Vladimir, I just wanted to start things off. I want to turn the microphone over to you. What caused you to leave? What are your plans moving forward? And since we just had some breaking news a few hours before we started recording, also want to get your view on the new U.S. sanctions, specifically the ban on Russian sovereign debt, which is uh, probably one of the most drastic steps we've taken uh, so far. But let's hear your story, Vladimir. What led to this decision? Yeah, uh, first, uh, I have to say that I've always been repeating basically the same line, which you just quoted from uh, Vladimir Karamurza, saying that Russian politician needs to be in Russia. That is true. However, uh, what we are seeing right now is an absolutely unprecedented crackdown on uh, major opposition leaders, 
basically it's fair to say that like over 90% of prominent uh, opposition figures who uh, were working within Navalny's inner circle are either under arrest or criminal investigations or very severe restrictions related to that or were forced to emigrate. Uh, so you basically have to make a choice and uh, particularly this escalated in late January after Navalny's return. And I have to say the major thing probably was the palace movie because Putin was really, really offended at that and humiliated. And I think the crackdown came mostly in response, not even to the rallies, but uh, in return to that, uh, to his major humiliation in front of dozens of millions of the Russian people to the extent never seen before. Uh, so, uh, listen, I know how this happens. Usually I was detained previously during the major opposition rallies in 2018 and 2019. Uh, so when news came that uh, they came with raids and arrested a lot of my fellow opposition friends, uh, putting a lot of them under house arrest, under criminal investigations and so on, I decided that uh, I need to keep myself safe to continue the important work that I do. I also consulted a lot of colleagues uh, from our opposition circles on that. Uh, because it's it's a very bad thing uh, that everybody would sit in jail and would be mm. or under house arrest and would be incapacitated. Because you see how it happens with either Alexei Navalny or the colleagues who are either under house arrest or are forbidden uh, from major opposition activities by the court uh, due to criminal investigation. So uh, we thought that we need at least some people who continue important work. Plus also a very major factor, which I probably would have stayed uh, for some longer period, but there is a major factor, which are uh, an array of lawsuits by Evgeny Prigozhin, the so-called notorious Putin's chef. There are already pending lawsuits uh, with claims totaling at 25 million rubles. There are a couple of more, uh, I assume, with a similar magnitude of uh, financial claims, but I don't know exactly. So I don't have that money, point number one. And point number two, I don't really want to pay this scoundrel a single penny because uh, he's a very bad man. He's a true criminal involved in a lot of really notorious activities. So this is from just a purely ethical standpoint. I don't want to pay him anything, but if I didn't, I would be prohibited by the bailiff service from exiting Russia. So the choice was simple. Either I leave now or in like a month or half a month, uh, a month and a half time, uh, there will be no opportunity for me to leave and I will be forced uh, to stay within Russian borders. So we decided to do it now. It was a pretty unexpected, sudden and dramatic uh, decision, but the good news is that uh, there is a lot of work to do, which I'm involved in right now, and I believe it will be extremely helpful to advance the opposition cause inside Russia. And uh, I just left three weeks ago, so I'm still pretty aware about what's going on in there. Right, of course. And Vilnius is, interestingly enough, I've often joked that the, the most interesting centers of intellectual activity in the Russian language are quickly becoming Vilnius, Riga, Kiev, 
and not so much Moscow and Petersburg anymore. I mean, there's you're going to have a lot of company there in Vilnius. Uh, I know the Lithuanians have. I want to talk about this a little bit later. Let's, with open arms, uh, brought Russians seeking political asylum into Lithuania. I actually attended a an art exhibition about Russians who fled Russia and were welcomed in Lithuania. Um, it was following the opening of the Sakharov Center at Vitutis Magnus University. So you're going to have company there. I, I wanted to, Maria to come in on your situation and what all this tells us. But just briefly, Vladimir, what's your take on the sanctions? Because I know there are different views in, among Russian opposition figures for the sanctions. This latest round of sanctions is, I think, quite significant and a qualitative change over what we've seen before, most significantly the limitations on the buying and selling of Russian sovereign debt by U.S. entities. I know this is going to be controversial in Russia, even among the opposition. For the record, it's something I've been advocating for for a long time, um, and I'm, I'm actually happy to see this. But I'd be interested in hearing your, your thoughts on this. Well, that's, that's really one big in there in the whole package announced today, the sanctions against the Russian sovereign debt. Uh, not so much that it will have like an immediate economic impact, uh, because Russian dependency on uh, borrowing money for the federal government is relatively low. Uh, we can do without it. But what is important is that uh, sovereign debt is on top of the pyramid of Russian borrowing. So whenever any Russian entity comes to international creditors, uh, they do an assessment, uh, they, do, uh, they assess risks associated with uh, lending to a Russian borrower. And on top of that is the uh, creditor's position of the Russian federal government, which is obviously the biggest and what was considered before today the most secure borrower uh, inside Russia. So this will impact hugely. We already have very strong difficulties with corporate borrowing since 2014 and financial sanctions introduced then against Russian companies and banks. But over these years, government had propagated like they are immune. So it's, it, these are sanctions against Rosneft, Surgutneftigas, right. whoever, whatever companies are associated with uh, American sanctions, but the federal government will be immune. And uh, among investor community, uh, these bonds, Russian government bonds, have been considered a very attractive, very sexy instrument, if you will, because uh, Russia is still a major oil exporter. There is a huge inflow of cash. So investors always said, like, look, they will always have something to repay these bonds with. So this is one of the most secure assets. Plus, because of the country risks, Russia paid a high premium a high in yield, recent yeah. years. And uh, Siluanov was uh, last year when we had a COVID crisis and uh, uh, journalists and uh, commentators have been asking Ministry of Finance, why don't they borrow more? Uh, Siluanov said, we prefer not to do it because it's way too expensive. We have to pay like around 7% yield, which is okay. way too high. And I can go for hours, so let me just right. not get into that, about uh, how much the government spending on servicing the debt had skyrocketed, but believe me, the figure is big. Right. So the, the impact the impact of today's uh, sanctions is big, not in terms of like a current consequences, but in terms of Russia being cut off uh, from future borrowing in international financial markets, it's going to be a big deal in terms of impact of returning to economic growth. I'd say we've been cut off from this prospect as well. Mm. And you think this helps the opposition, people like you? Listen, it's a more complex uh, situation because, like, Putin Putin launched a war, uh, essentially a war against everybody, against Russia's own people, against Russia's future, Russian opposition, against uh, international rule-based order, against Western democracies. 
I don't know. When you have a war, uh, it, it doesn't matter. You can always expect that a you know a projectile would hit you from somewhere. <laughs> you know. Right. So it's it's difficult to assess uh, like an impact of specific projectiles. You know, which is the most responsible for what. Uh, but definitely, if you if you launch a war against anybody, you have to expand consequences. So we think that in this case, uh, Biden's administration actions are pretty justified because, yes, there are there are a lot of bad things that Putin have done for which he deserves a response. I want to bring Maria into the conversation now and get her thoughts. Maria, I mean, what is the fact that we're having this conversation right now with the former energy minister of the Russian Federation explaining to us why he felt the need to flee his country? Um, what does this say about the state of affairs in Russia at the moment? Thank you, Brian. Can I just quickly also add on the sanction debate? I'm a little bit less uh, optimistic about the sanctions because what is prohibited when it comes to the sovereign debt is uh, primarily um, the buying of Russian bonds on the, on the primary market, primary on the market. first uh, emitted, right? Uh, but what it means is that uh, with a um, little effort, there will be a lot of opportunities to continue invest in Russia's debt. Uh, and it seems to be more of a signal from the Biden administration, very welcome signal, but it's not fundamentally dead blow uh, mm. to the Kremlin. Uh, in addition, Sergei Alexashenko commented uh, on Twitter uh, that it's also late action because since the beginning of 2020, uh, the share of um, non-residents in Russia's debt has decreased uh, significantly. It's close to 7% uh, in the new issue perhaps new immediate applications. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's not going to be seriously affecting the sales of the Russian debt. There's just something to keep in mind. It seems to be more of a symbolic action, and it's a little bit frustrating that the uh, U.S. administration kind of tends to stick with symbolic actions more uh, than actually trying to do some actions right. when it comes to dealing with the crown. So I uh, see the current situation as uh, escalation of repressions uh, in Russia domestically. Just another news I think earlier today, about, or yesterday, about the attacks on uh, Irkutsk offices of uh, Navalny's yep. team. There is ongoing prosecution ongoing in Khabarovsk, but primarily on the uh, people who are associated to Navalny, as well as uh, potential participants of the protest, as we have seen uh, by the attack of the Students' Journal. And in this situation, it's completely understandable uh, that the people will choose uh, kind of to try uh, to avoid um, uh, this current situation. So in the recent years, so since 2017, at the very least, we observe a huge uh, new immigration wave from Russia. It's a little bit hard to estimate because uh, there is no uh, reliable statistics uh, by Rostat, uh, but even Rostat itself uh, re reports increasing numbers uh, since 2017. Uh, people who live in uh, Russia, they don't reach officially stop being Russian citizens. So from this perspective, it's a little bit hard to right. um, follow the statistics, but we do uh, know for sure that uh, uh, there's a huge wave, and definitely after this new wave of repression, there will be a continuing escalation of this uh, immigration. The youngest, the brightest, the smartest people uh, live, as uh, Vladimir's example demonstrates. But the upside, and if there's any upside to talk about, it's not Soviet times anymore, right? So people come back when the situation changed. For example, 2011-12, we saw the opposite trends. Uh, when people actually were returning to Russia, the Putin regime is quite afraid of what's happening. The society is growing increasingly unhappy with the system. Alexei Navalny and his team has been extremely successful in mobilizing a lot of protesters. Uh, but unfortunately, the size, the sheer size of the protest, uh, protests of the opposition supporters is not sufficiently strong yet. 
it's quite impressive, but not sufficiently strong to counter this new wave of repression escalation on the Kremlin mm. side. So, I mean, you'd almost, I mean, I, I guess I'd like to get your both on this, but uh, it seems to me that the Kremlin is trying to force immigration. Um, they're trying to push the opposition out, it, returning to that policy that existed in the Brezhnev and Andropov times when dissidents were encouraged to emigrate. Um, they sent clear signals to Navalny that he shouldn't come back to Russia. He did, and we've seen the results. Um, Vladimir, they're probably not terribly upset about you leaving. Do you think that's what they're trying to do? Do you think they're trying to create a situation where the best and the brightest in the opposition movement are just simply leaving the country and then they can be, the Kremlin can you you know do propaganda campaigns against you saying you're unpatriotic because you left Russia and so on and so forth. Do you think that's their game? Yeah, that's part of it. And this is what they are openly saying. And not only the propaganda and the officials, but listen, when you are being detained, and I've been detained quite frequently, when you talk to ordinary policemen who detain you and riot police and security services, this is what they're being brainwashed with. This is the first thing they tell you. If you are not happy with what's going on in this country, why don't you just leave? So that's the simple formula that Kremlin really loves us to follow. Uh, however, there is more than that. And you mentioned Brezhnev and Andropov times, and I lived in Brezhnev and Andropov times, and I can tell there are major differences. First, in those times, uh, Soviet government did not go and try to kill uh, their political opponents in big numbers. As we uh, find out from uh, the recent Bellingcat investigations, this is a systemic effort. There was a unit specifically set up uh, to kill prominent opposition figures and make it look like a heart attack, something, you know. Second thing, which is also a big difference, because I also remember how the Soviet government covered the situation with dissidents. They really tried to distance themselves uh, from, they said, this is just you know, one or two bad sheep in a family. The uh, Brezhnev government and Andropov government were really refraining from this sort of mass repressions, from scaring off anybody, like going into schools and talking to parents and saying, if your children participate in something, then you're going to be squashed and, and, and stuff like that. All this uh, specific show of violence uh, by riot police during protests. I didn't remember anything of that sort from my childhood, and I'm old enough to remember I watched Brezhnev funeral live on television and still remember as it was yesterday. So that's a huge departure. Like apart from they they, they wishing us to leave, uh, there is also uh, Masha mentioned the crackdown on uh, the youth uh, magazine Doxa in the Moscow uh, State mm. University. That's a remarkable story to follow. Now, Putin had really waged a real war against Russian younger generation, not putting it like, you know, there are several bad sheep in the family, we want them to leave the country, and that is it. No, he's essentially accepting the situation like all of the younger generation, most of the younger generation are his enemies. And he would uh, willingly crack down on them all, not just the prominent opposition figures, but anybody who shows dissent on a mass scale. That is something truly different because Brezhnev and Andropov wanted to portray themselves as fathers of the nation. And dissidents are just like a few handful of exceptions who just don't want to accept our brilliant uh, Soviet system, the best in the world. Not with Putin. That's a totally, I mean, we, we more, listen, I mean, seriously, uh, what we're seeing in the country right now 
is more looking like a coverage of, you know, uh, capitalist dictatorships like we saw in the 80s, like Chongdu Hwan in South Korea with the massacres and massive police brutality or Pinochet, Pinochet uh, Chile, or right. Argen- Argentinian junta in, in, in Argentina, right? So this is resemblant of this, not at all of Brezhnev and Andropov government behavior. Maria, your thoughts? Because I see you you nodding and writing, and I know you do a lot of work on the youth. So um, what, it, it sounds to me uh, like Vladimir is saying that Putin's even more repressive than uh, Andropov and, and, and Brezhnev, which is uh, an interesting observation from somebody who should know. Uh, Maria, your thoughts? Uh, very interesting conversation. Thanks a lot, uh, Vladimir and, and Brian. I uh, Actually, it's hard for me to compare uh, the repression levels uh, to Andropov and Brezhnev uh, based on what I've read, because there was no official statistics, right? It's a little bit harder uh, for us to uh, understand the numbers and compare them. Uh, also, Putin's regime has a smaller repressive capacity. Uh, remember in 2019, uh, when after Moscow protests, uh, many of the uh, members of the protests were arrested, at some point, uh, the Moscow authorities ran out of the free space of the jails uh, to put the protesters in. In those situations, of course, they come come up with substitutes and the Belarus, for example, they would put these people in the stadiums, also like hold them in atrocious conditions. But there is a limit uh, to the repressiveness of the state, despite the fact that the state in the recent years increasingly invested in the security uh, bodies as well as uh, additional space to arrest and prosecute uh, people. Uh, there's still limits uh, to what they can do. And that, I think, is a good news. Uh, the bad news, uh, precisely along the lines, I mean, quote unquote, the bad news, along the lines that Vladimir emphasized, is the nature of contemporary political system uh, of Russia that has open borders, right? Uh, and of course, people who are unhappy uh, with the system or they didn't have a lot of opportunities for them, uh, politically or professionally, uh, they leave. And uh, we uh, have seen, of course, the situation for many years already. And then, unfortunately, I'm not personal myself, I am kind of, I hold that responsibility as well, right? If I lived in Russia, of course, I would have much more um, actively uh, participation in all of the protests uh, that uh, take place uh, in the country, but I'm away uh, because I have, there's more opportunities for me outside of the country. And therefore, there are fewer protesters, there are fewer participants. And many of people who uh, essentially choose to leave Russia, uh, they have this very kind of under similar logic, as a result, uh, we have fewer uh, participants uh, in the protests. And the regime very actively, very perceptively understands this, manipulates uh, this perception, precisely as Vladimir said, offers uh, to live. Uh, and therefore, unlike other observers of Russia, I do not think uh, the Iron Curtain is some, anything to be afraid in the near future, because for Putin's regime, the strength and its resilience precisely based on the open borders and kicking out all the active people who are, who are partial, who are really concerned without the future of their um, uh, societies. As a result, of course, uh, it's one of the key foundations of this regime and its strength is precisely the open borders. Mm. No, that's that's actually a very good point. It's in, it's in Putin's interest to keep the borders open. Um, and that does seem to support the, the notion that they are trying to force emigration. There's going to be some knock-on effects from that. And that is that Russia already is suffering and will continue to suffer a, a massive brain drain when some of the best minds in the, the country, two of whom are on my podcast right now, are, are choosing to live outside of Russia's borders. I wanted to shift and get both of your uh, take on this because I am, I am of the mind that you can be very effective in helping the cause of democracy in Russia from abroad. I think this can be done. I do not buy into the the notion that if you leave, you're going to be very ineffective. I mean, there's there's examples all around us. Um, 
Maria, you and I both do work closely with the Free Russia Foundation here in Washington. I think they're extraordinarily effective in advancing the goal of, of, of a someday a free Russia. Um, Mikhail Hodorkovsky is doing a lot of good work with his foundation in London. Our common friend, Vladimir Karamurza, has been a very, very effective lobbyist in Western capitals for various things, including the Global Magnitsky Act. So I think it is possible to be effective from abroad. And Vladimir, I wanted to get your take on this initially, is that, like, what are your plans going forward? How do you hope to continue the fight, albeit from the West, in this case, from Vilnius? Well, uh, specifically about myself, uh, uh, this is what we discussed with colleagues, and also this had contributed to my decision to uh, move to Vilnius, is that I'm very useful because of my international connections, uh, expertise and reputation and so on. So it's much more beneficial for the opposition to have me uh, free, <laughs> not not imprisoned, not detained, and being able to communicate across Europe and the United States and the rest of the democratic world about the potential response. We really believe that elevation of the Western response and sanctions might be one of the issues which can influence, well, at least maybe not a change in Putin's policy, but at least sort of bring him to the table and uh, make him refrain from further uh, domestic and international escalation. So I think that's important, and this is the major role that I see to myself. Also, I am a very popular YouTuber, uh, watched by... At least hundreds of thousands of Russians. I, I, I just so watched on. your last video before you left. On the, it was recorded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I also I need to speak. People want to listen to this inside Russia. So going back to your uh, question about how do you are still make uh, sure that you're relevant despite not being present, and I think that's that was a major mistake of the, some of the past uh, opposition movements in Russia and in Soviet Union like the NTS, uh, People Labor Union, Narodna Trudavoy Soyuz, right, which was a major uh, Soviet opposition organization operating from abroad. The key issue is to be always connected to somebody who is uh, effective and operating in Russia on the ground. So you have to understand that while you are abroad, your mission is but to help them. Mm-hmm. not to try to set up your own thing like uh, government in exile or whatever, right? <laughs> But uh, you need to do, once you are uh, relatively safe, I mean relatively, because we know all the stories how Putin has long hands and he can reach all of us here. No no illusion about that. But wh- while you're relatively safe, uh, you got to do whatever you can to help the people who are still out there. I see this in my colleagues who are also in Vilnius and in other places. We see it as a major uh, commitment at the moment. Also, the Free Russia Foundation, which you just mentioned, that was, I think, the first uh, Russian uh, structure in the United States that was specifically set up with purpose not to create something new, like a real Russian opposition in Washington, right? Mm -hmm. But specifically to help doing what we do and what the folks do inside Russia. And that is, this is why Putin is extremely irritated at the Free Russia Foundation and a couple of years ago declared it an undesirable organization, which which has a lot of very uh, negative legal and financial consequences for people who deal with it, right? Yeah. So so that's important. The principle number one is that while you're away, your main purpose is to help people who are still in who want to continue the fight. I think that's that's the recipe for efficiency. 
Yeah, no, I, I would add to that, Vladimir, that um, and I this is from my experience in Ukraine in the early 90s is um, one thing I noticed at that time was that um, a lot of the energy for the reformist uh, elements in and out of government, a lot of it came from the emigrant community who brought all this experience with them back to Ukraine and in some future Russia. Those of you who are spending time outside of Russia, living in Western societies at this point, whether it's in Europe or North America, are going to be able to bring back a lot of know-how and a lot of experience and a lot of insight. So I think that's that's another aspect of this. And also thinking specifically about the Free Russia Foundation, I mean, they are also a vital source of information and insight into Russia for decision makers here in Washington. I mean, they've really provided these really great briefings um, on the Hill for congressional staff. And that's a that's another uh, another aspect of it. Maria, I wanted to bring you into this because I know you definitely have some thoughts on this. One percent. I just wanted to agree with Vladimir about the point about the existence of networks. Looking at the uh, trends and successes of post-communist uh, revolutions in the recent years and post-Soviet revolutions specifically, the existence of networks uh, where actors in uh, the states actually confer and learn from innovators and from other experiences of people from outside is one of the key factors that predicts uh, success of uh, such a revolution. Unfortunately, the Kremlin is quite aware of that as right. well. Hence the fight. Uh, hence the essential persecution of uh, countries with uh, color revolution, as well as persecution of domestic uh, and outside opposition uh, in Russia. Uh, having said that, uh, yes, unfortunately, the current reality is that the brightest, the smartest, the most uh, courageous people who dare essentially to stand up to the state are eventually often forced to exile. Russia loses about, uh, by the most modest estimates, 100 to 120,000 of people per year. Mm -hmm. And of those, we're talking of the brightest and the smartest. Yeah. Uh, the result is that there's, there's some self-selection element here, right? Unfortunately, domestically in the country, uh, those who remain, uh, unfortunately, some people who have a uh, few of those qualities, right? And that, of course, is the source of uh, continuity of the regime uh, in the longer term. Uh, talking about the networks, uh, however, one particular factor, um, we're talking practically from practical perspective, uh, that came across is actually uh, the knowledge of English language. Ironically, such an easy thing uh, may become an obstacle uh, for reinforcing those transnational networks uh, between Russia's domestic uh, actors and abroad. And that's one of the actual elements where I think the international community could help by really just as simple as promoting the knowledge of English language, which would reinforce uh, this actually, the building and development of these uh, networks. Yeah, no, and the, we, we used to do that a lot more uh, actively. Um, before we move into the second half and just talk more generally about what's going on in Russia and specifically the Navalny situation, Vladimir, I wanted to get your, um, like, why Lithuania? Because, again, as I mentioned earlier, Lithuania has really stood out as a country that has welcomed Russians seeking political asylum or fleeing the country for one reason or another. Um, we have many, many Russian friends who are, are currently residing in, in Vilnius. Um, how have you why did you choose Lithuania and um, how are you finding it? Is it because of this this kind of network of Russians that are there? Now, listen, Lithuania was always a standard bearer of freedom uh, on the whole post-Soviet space. It's ironic, uh, 30 years ago, we were coming out in Moscow to these huge rallies yep. with these big slogans. You can find these uh, photos yes. on, on the internet, Bolsheviks hands off Lithuania. Yes, because I remember. We had this 
tragic, tragic events in Vilnius in January 91, which was a prelude to a, a subsequent coup d'etat in Moscow. So, uh, listen, uh, I mean, I, I think I'm not exaggerating here. Lithuanians were always a champion of freedom on a post-Soviet space. And uh, they, they still keep this banner, uh, and uh, particularly why, you, you asking why, why I have chosen Vilnius, after uh, Belarus elections past August, I used to cover it on Navalny Live YouTube channel, and there were hugely popular streams with millions of viewers and so on. And I also commanded international reaction. And Lithuania was always the first mm -hmm. among everybody. They came in, they condemned, they introduced their national sanctions way before European Union and other countries reacted. I had people like a former uh, Prime Minister Andrus Kubilius or Belarus rapporteur in the European Parliament, Petros Ostravich, who's on my streams live speaking in right. Russian. So listen, I mean, there was yeah. basically there was there was not a discussion. If if you want to have a democracy hub, which is willing to support uh, free people of Russia and Belarus, which is I think it's important to yeah. talk about the convergence between our yes. uh, nations and so on. I think Lithuanians have proven that they are ready to stand firm and uh, defend aspirations of those who want to see Russia and Belarus as free as and democratic states. So, like, there was, there was really not a lot uh, of I, thinking, and there was a very no, I, easy I, choice. It's certainly yeah. a good choice. It's one of my favorite countries, and Vilnius is yeah. one of my favorite cities. And you also have, I mean, a government uh, in general, specifically under the previous foreign minister, our common friend, Lina Slinkevichis, you had things like the Free Russia Forum, right, every year, which was created this kind of safe space for Russian opposition figures to come. As I mentioned earlier, you had the creation of the, the, the Sokotov Library um, and the papers, the, the official papers from the Sokotov family are, are now being housed, not in Russia, but at Vitutas Magnus University in, in, in Kaunas, Lithuania. So there is a, a great infrastructure there. Um, Maria, any last thoughts on this before you shift gears into the second half? Well, I just wanted to, again, uh, praise the courage and commitment of Russia's opposition, uh, be it Vladimir Milov or Alexei Navalny. And I think we all should remember about the current situation uh, happening with Alexei Navalny, who is suffering uh, badly yeah. for his heroic uh, decision to, frankly, return to Russia. I think we're lucky to be, uh, you know, to live, to believe in at the same uh, time to speak, not to sound too strong about that, but I think we're lucky to leave uh, with people who are still able to commit these acts of heroism. Yeah, no, it certainly does. And I want to devote a lot of the second half of the program today to talking about the Navalny situation. So that's a good segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the situation surrounding Navalny, the increasingly tense domestic dynamics in Russia, and where all this may be headed. So stick around. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm your host. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, is leading Russian opposition figure and former Russian energy minister, Vladimir Milov. And also joining us from DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at 
PowerVertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. So if in the first half we focused on what those who choose to leave Russia can do to help their country to combat autocracy and kleptocracy, in this segment I want to take a closer look at those who remain inside Russia, and not least among those is, of course, Alexei Navalny. Um, the situation with Navalny is getting increasingly dire. The Putin regime, clearly nervous about elections in September, is taking off the gloves and appears to have no limits on what it will do. Vladimir, earlier this week, you released a video on YouTube um, that advising the opposition what to do moving forward. You've always viewed this battle as a long game. I remember from previous conversations that you and I have had about this. What are your thoughts on the situation with Navalny and what the opposition in Russia can do moving forward? Well, first, Brian, I want to return to your uh, earlier remarks about the paradox uh, that we're experiencing, that uh, the crackdown by Putin on the opposition circles is the strongest as ever. At the same time, the opposition is uh, organized as ever and uh, is really ready to, to respond and to continue to fight for the better future despite all the difficulties. I think that's easily explained because this is actually a clash of two trends that have been evolving for some time. Putin has been losing popularity, uh, losing any ability to deliver a vision for the country's future. Uh, it became clear some time ago that the only way he can hold on to power is by force. So we're actually at that exact moment where he has started to hide it in any way. He had decided to openly show, yeah, I'm going to stay by force. So uh, basically, you have to accept it, folks. And the opposition has uh, also been progressing a lot in the recent years. Just remember where we were three or four years ago, four years ago, when uh, Navalny had first called for a major anti-corruption protest against Medvedev with the Dimon movie, right? Mm -hmm. That was like an eye-opener surprise to everyone that so many people came across the country to a nationwide protest. But now we're, yeah, I agree with Maria that it's not enough to dramatically change the situation, but it's still, it's even bigger than we had then, uh, despite all the repressions, all the crackdown and so on. So essentially, and uh, listen, I have been commenting on this many times during my uh, live YouTube shows over the past years, that we are actually supposed to reach a clash point when these mm -hmm. two trends will collide. Putin's inability to hold on to power by any other means but force, plus the opposition's growing strength when it's actually becoming an actor, a player at the mm -hmm. national uh, mm -hmm. scene, saying that, look, you got to listen to us finally, right? We're not just marginals that you're trying to portray us. We represent a huge amount of people, millions or probably dozens of millions of people, again, I would simply remind that uh, Navalny's colleagues in the regions and he himself, when we were allowed to take part in regional and local elections, we easily get like 20, 30 percent, which mm -hmm. is uh, if that's going to happen at a federal parliamentary election, it means that at least we're going to be a second biggest parliamentary right. force. It means that you got to listen to us in terms of determining the course of the country. So it was, it was clear that inevitably these two trends, uh, Putin weakening, opposition strengthening, would clash at some point. So this is the very clash that we're experiencing. As Russian history tells us, 
Russian clashes are particularly brutal, particularly mm -hmm. unpredictable, and um, really having all these, you know, dire features and consequences like the all the atrocities and brutality used against Navalny. Uh, I assume that you might have a question of why had Navalny chosen to return despite all the, the clear prospect of mm. him being treated this way. Listen, I think uh, he was extremely deeply touched and moved by these uh, events of the past few months where Putin tried to kill him, then blatantly denied, deny responsibility and going great lengths uh, internationally denying this in front of international leaders like Merkel, Macron, Charles mm. Michel, and others, saying that I don't care, uh, this was not me, Navalny simulated, and so on. Navalny was sort of deeply offended by this. He wanted to respond. <laughs> he responded multiple ways with the Palace movie, with his comeback, and he's showing that he's uh, a sort of a I did it my way politician. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not like, you know, you remember this... Uh, movie, American movie, Lethal Weapon. Yes. <laughs> if, if, if she's going to die, she's going to die with me my way, not yours. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. sad as it may sound, but I know him for a long time. So he's the man of this, you know, a man of principles and a man of very strong attitude. Like he won't give up uh, in the mm -hmm. face of mm -hmm. this uh, uh, very strong circumstances. He understands that he has a lot of political responsibility before the people that uh, he actually brought into the opposition in, in the past years. So he, he can't give up. He needs to move on. And uh, he felt that he could not let Putin have it his way. Like, uh, you know, uh, we threatened you to put you in jail. So stay abroad. Don't come back to Russia. No, he said, I want to have it my way. So difficult and tough as it is to watch. But uh, that's what he's always been. Yeah, it is with with huge risk because it is pretty obvious to me that the Kremlin is trying to eliminate him. They tried to eliminate him with Novichok, and now I'm I'm quite frankly very concerned about uh, what's going to happen to Navalny in prison, where they have total control over him. I mean, how how can you assess that? I mean, this uh, do they dare go that far? Yes. I think so. I'm, I'm extremely concerned about what's going to happen. And I don't think that Putin specifically wants to kill him right now. But I think Putin is also extremely mad after what Navalny did, particularly in the, in the recent period, like exposure of this murderous FSB squad, right. exposure of systemic violation of chemical weapons convention with developing of chemical uh, nerve agents to kill people specifically and maintaining a squad to do that. Uh, exposing his palace to tens of millions of Russians. Uh, Levada poll have shown that over 30 million people had uh, had watched this movie in Russia, which is which is something unprecedented. Yeah, something that's, unprecedented. Yeah, that's huge. We right now we we're passing through a, a 20 year anniversary of destruction of Gusinski's NTV channel. Yep. I don't think that uh, even the biggest, uh, most popular NTV uh, shows uh, at that time were right. watched by that many people as, right. as a Palace movie, right? And uh, particularly what was exposed in the Palace movie uh, is, you know, Putin's multiple mistresses. He's trying to portray himself as a tra traditionalist, but, but here you go. 
his extreme uh, luxurious wealth, which is, believe me, not welcomed by the the ordinary not, Russians. Not to mention bad all. taste. Yeah, he was he was not to mention bad taste, but, but he was trying to portray himself as an ascetic person over years. Yeah. And now this veil has been put off, right? So he's extremely mad. So I'm sure he ordered, you know, treat him as badly so he understands, you know. But I, I don't think that Putin has an intention to kill him right now. But effectively, this is what they are doing. This is where it's the situation is heading to, right? So it's I have grave concerns about what's going on. I understand that we don't have any emergency brakes on the system, which is why I also uh, believe that this is my mission to help increase the international pressure also to uh, help contain whatever is Putin is doing to Navalny. But yeah, I mean, the situation is as dire as it looks. It's extremely serious and there should be grave concerns and the right. I mean, people who fear for Navalny's life, I mean, in the very near future, they are right. The situation is extremely serious and uh, it's, it's, it's as bad as anyone could imagine. Maria, this is a this is a pretty dire picture that Vladimir's painting, and he's certainly been in Russia more recently than you or I. Um, you and I, when we talk about this, we often talk about this period as this kind of crisis of late Putinism, this kind of term we've coined to describe this. And by this, we, of course, don't mean the regime's going to fall tomorrow. The regime's strong enough to hang on. But what I've always assumed was that we were headed for this second period of Zastoy, the second prolonged period of stagnation, similar to late Brezhnevism. But as I listen to Vladimir talk, it sounds to me like the final showdown is closer than we think. Um, would you agree? I uh, would say that we have different uh, lenses for which we look at this dynamic. And so I think that, unfortunately, the regime still has a lot of uh, resources. And there's some positive trends uh, ongoing in recent years, such as changing information structures of the population, growing alienation of the younger social groups, which are the future of Russia from the regime, growing dissatisfaction uh, with the regime among broader uh, social groups which were uh, historically loyal, and the regime's inability to sustain longer-term economic growth and redistribute uh, brand perks uh, to uh, his um, broader population circles as it's used uh, to do in the past uh, in order to sustain uh, support. So all of these longer-term trends certainly are quite worrisome for the Kremlin. And say, for example, by 2024, if this dynamic has continued, it's clear uh, that popularity of Putin will be even lower uh, that it's already now. Uh, it's also clear that the Crimea effect, the so-called Crimea effect, uh, which the un unprecedented growth uh, boost of the authorities' uh, popularity as a result of Crimea annexation, is is really gone. Right now, Levada sent officially confirmed that mm. uh, in the United Russia uh, rating, for example, about 43%. Still not, not that very low by democratic standards, but uh, it's certainly uh, below what it used to be. Uh, so from that perspective, these are all the risks for the regime uh, that it uh, increasingly more like um, anxious to mitigate, but there is no particular challenge like at this particular uh, moment. Uh, so from this perspective, I'd find uh, some common ground that this, yes, yeah. there's longer term uh, trends that are very, very uh, damaging uh, to the Putin. But at the same time, we also know, uh, looking at similar comparable personalistic neo-patrimonial regimes uh, that have evolved, emerged all over post-Soviet space and Africa, that unfortunately such regimes prove to be quite resilient, mm -hmm. uh, very hard to take over and usually end with leaders death. So it's not so much political science as it is a more of a medical science right. uh, that it often becomes. And I agree with Vladimir, by the way, that perhaps, hopefully, 
uh, problematic for the regime to directly like kill uh, Alexei Navalny right now, specifically now that Alexei is under their control, so they all eyes are on them. Right. But I think the bigger danger is that they will fundamentally undermine Alexei's uh, health, particularly against this, um, of course, the poisoning uh, that he mm. uh, suffered. Uh, we have these horrible experiences, uh, Sergei Mahnatkin, Vasily Alexanyan, whose health was fundamentally uh, damaged while they were staying in uh, prison. Then they were uh, left out only to die outside of the prison. So the Kremlin, the same, this way sort of kind of protects itself right. from being accused of direct murder. And uh, it's definitely what we observe right now is torture. It's, it's very medieval on a lot of levels. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's definitely extremely hard to watch. I also see this depression and like feel of inability, feeling of inability to change uh, things spreading across um, my friends. But it's also very inspiring to see uh, the other alternative trends among the younger uh, social groups in the country. Well, as we're as we're pushing up against the end here, the last thing I wanted to hear from both of you is um, I'm, I'm sitting here in Washington. I think I have some listeners in this town. Uh, Vladimir, what would you like to see the West do? What would you like to see from the United States in terms of policy and from the West more generally in terms of policy vis-a-vis Russia, given this situation? Uh, Brent, first, I, I want the West to understand that what we're facing is not just some, you know, some problems in the outback, right? Oh, there's a bad uh, Democratic Republic of Arctic Congo, <laughs> which, which <laughs> so we got to do something about it. No, what happens is an emergency of a very strong autocratic international, including Russia, China, anything else across the board, Iran, Lukashenko, the Maduro, they all in there, right? Which are, these are far more sophisticated dictatorships than the dictatorships that we saw in the second half of the 20th century. These are dictatorships which are well aware that what they're doing is bad for their countries and the population is generally against them. They are really prepared to defend themselves by force against their own people. They are prepared to use sophisticated tools, propaganda, bribery, cyber uh, attacks, uh, whatever, right? They are really proficient because they have a lot of money. It's not something we had in the 80s and the 90s when China was still poor. These dictatorships, they have a lot of money and they see the democratic West as an existential threat. They want to bring us back as Slava Nikonov, the grandson of Molotov, Mm-hmm. And Ribbentrop. Right. <laughs> uh, listen, if you if you want to understand what's on Putin's mind vis-a-vis foreign policy, read Slava Nikonov's article Back to Concert, Concert of Nations right. of the 19th Century. Right. A bunch of mafia bosses sitting together deciding the fate of the world. No liberal democratic rule-based order, no nothing, no rights of the people, just a handful of powerhouses deciding the world. This is what they want to do. They want to undermine uh, liberal democratic order. It, it's not some problem of some, you know, Arctic Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's not some troubled outback where they want to kill the uh, opposition leader with chemical agent. No. It's a part of the full-scale assault on a liberal democratic order. So the West should understand that they are under threat. And all the symptoms that have we have been discussing here tonight are just symptoms of this big universal threat. So it needs a coordinated response. Uh, we can talk for hours yeah, about no, specifics, but I think there's, there's a very little realization in the West that this is a systemic threat, not just a mad dictator misbehaving, which we saw plenty during the thousands of years of 
the history of mankind. But this is something new, a much more sophisticated, much stronger threat from an autocrat international towards democratic order. That should be taken really seriously in a systemic way. No, uh, you, you took the words right out of my my mouth, Vladimir. I just I just authored a couple of policy briefs, um, and I'm currently hoping to get funding for a book um, on this very nature of this systemic threat. What I argue for is that we move beyond sanctions, and it sounds like what you're you're arguing for. We move beyond sanctions to a kind of a policy doctrine. Um, I'm calling it hybrid containment, kind of a modern containment for the 21st century that contains Russia's malign influence, both kinetic military and non-kinetic political um, disinformation and weaponized corruption and, and so on. That sounds to me what you're arguing for, um, and I, I, I certainly agree with that. Maria, last word to you before we wrap it up. Yeah, I second everything uh, Vladimir said, and Brian, looking forward to hopefully reading your book uh, in the future. I just wanted to add that, first of all, uh, there's this concept that sanctions tools are exhausted or sanctions are not working. Uh, that's not true at all. First of all, sanctions do work. They have severe impact on the economic growth, cutting off up to uh, one, two, by some state estimates, even 3% of the economic growth annually in Russia and definitely contribute to the uh, backsliding uh, of Russia. But the problem is that they're not sufficiently strong to be able to uh, prevent uh, continuous uh, aggression of Putin domestically as well as internationally. As Vladimir has said, uh, it's important to understand for the West, it's no longer, Russia is no longer a foreign policy issue, it's a domestic issue for the West with Putin interfering in elections, de facto organizing small terrorist attack by implementing prohibited chemical weapons on the territories of these countries, etc., etc. And uh, sanctions actually have a tremendous uh, potential. There's a possibility to expand. I would recommend to our audience to take a look at our colleagues at the Atlantic Council's uh, recent article. Uh, Brian O'Toole and Daniel Fried just published another uh, piece, What if Russia invades Ukraine again? They discuss a number of options within the existing sanctions designs that are not particularly costly for the West and still are doable. So there is a lot of uh, leverage there. There is a lot of possibility to expand. And it's unfortunately, in recent years, uh, Western policymakers have really uh, chosen the least uh, biting, the least painful uh, options for the Kremlin. Hopefully, uh, this will change as they understand uh, the threat that the regime actually represents uh, for the West and for Russia as well. I mean, just on a final note, just to inject a little bit of optimism in this, I think the Western capitals, by and large, have woken up in a relative sense to this. If you, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation five years ago talking about banning Russian sovereign debt sales, um, even in the primary market, right? Um, I think we're beginning to see a change in how this is viewed. I think we're beginning to see a realization that this is actually a systemic threat, um, much like the Cold War. It's a normative struggle. And I, so I think we're, we're, we're not where we need to be yet, but I think we're, we're, we're moving in the right direction. And on that note, I guess we'll have to wrap it up for today. As I look at the clock, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Article Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, which I can't wait to visit again, 
has been the leading Russian opposition figure and former Russian energy minister, Vladimir Milov, and also joining us from down the street in DC's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood has been my old friend and colleague, Maria Snegovaya, a postdoctoral fellow at the Kellogg Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Virginia Tech, a visiting scholar at the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington, and a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you both for an enlightening, albeit somewhat disturbing discussion. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Cecilia Wynn handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a lot better than we really do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. Power Vertical.